Welcome back to Create Space, a podcast that finds joy in the art of storytelling. Today, we're taking a little bit of a detour from our usual programming. So uh, I've done this a little bit before. I usually have my episodes planned out, you know, weeks in advance, but occasionally things happen in current events that kind of make me want to change course for whatever reason. So I am introducing something today that may become a series, possibly. We'll see if if people like it, then maybe we'll continue it. But I noticed that, you know, there was a big thing that happened in the news, uh, which was the Silicon Valley bank collapse. And everyone was talking about it, at least everyone in my world. And no one really knew what was going on. You know, most of us were doing a lot of searching and researching on the internet and saying, well, this source told me this and this source told me that, but I really don't understand all of it. And of course, a big part of that is I know literally nothing about finance, right? Like that is not my expertise at all. However, my brother works in finance uh, and has for, you know, a really long time, more than a decade, um, and has a lot of experience in large banks, and he works in risk management. So I thought to myself, you know what? I wonder if he would be willing to come on and do a current event story time, right? So take this confusing stuff that is nebulous that we don't really understand and put it break it down for us, right? Answer the questions that I haven't been able to get answers to and talk us through what it actually means to say the Silicon Valley bank collapsed. What does that mean? What are the implications? Should we be doing things differently with our money? Um, And just kind of like bring the storytelling into the numbers. You know what I mean? And, and it's really interesting, and you'll find when we talk to him, that communication and the story being told is actually kind of a big part of what happened. It's kind of part of the reason that everyone wanted to get their money on the same day it was sort of a miscommunication. So it's really fascinating to hear him talk about it. Uh, I still have a hard time wrapping my brain around it, but... Um, you know, he's really intelligent, really smart guy, uh, has years of experience. I hate to compliment my brother this much. I'm going to be real with you. But honestly, he's very, very smart uh, and has a really eloquent, um, easy to listen to way of explaining these sorts of things. So welcome to our first ever Create Space current event story time as we get into the Silicon Valley bank collapse. Jason Forbes, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. We are doing what may end up being a series, who knows, but a current events story time. So I'm not an expert in finance or the economy or business or any of those things, um, but I happen to have a brother who is kind of an expert in finance. So what I have noticed is a lot of people in my world are talking about the Silicon Valley bank collapse over the past couple of weeks. And everybody has opinions. Everybody has things they want to say about it. And I really don't get it. So I asked Jason to come on and talk to us and explain it to us like we're 10 years old, basically, and tell us what happened and how did it happen? What does it mean? What does it not mean? So he's going to do a current event story time with us. Jason, welcome. Thanks. And thanks for creating some space for me in your podcast. 
<laughs> You're welcome. Will you first tell us, so I said you were an expert in finance, but why, why should we care? Why are you the person that can explain this to us? What's your experience? Well, you definitely shouldn't care, um, but I could definitely help explain a few things. So I've worked in finance. I work in risk management, to be specific, but I work for several banks, um, currently an Austrian bank, previously a large German bank, Deutsche Bank, and uh, before that, a UK bank, Standard Charter Bank. So I've seen the insides of how they work. And also, um, I've worked in credit risk management my whole life as well. And there, when a client has a problem, one of our main jobs is that we're supposed to keep up on the news. We're supposed to be able to digest um, financial stories relatively quickly. And I've gotten somewhat good at that so I can filter out what is just some talk and what is actually maybe a material issue. I can't tell what the future holds, but I can definitely give a, a sense of what's going on and what might happen. Okay. So you said risk risk management for a bank. So is that, I mean, is that essentially making sure that the risk is low for your bank to not collapse? Like, did the risk management people at Silicon Valley Bank not do their job? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And we can get into that a little bit. But really? um, they had... <laughs> I uh, thought I was joking. Uh, yeah, uh, what I work in is counterparty credit risk. So how, how likely is the client to pay us back? And if they do not pay us back, how much could we lose? What does that look like? Do we have enough um, uh, bank capital to... Uh, to absorb those losses, uh, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense at the individual client level, but we worked with portfolio groups that look at it on a bank-wide level, and there's thousands and thousands of people that work for a bank, so we all work together to find out um, how much uh, we should be covering our risks. Um, if is there going to be if there is a liquidity crisis, what happens? If there are uh, defaults, like bankruptcies, with our clients, what happens? Okay, so you would be handling this situation if it happened at your bank, right? Like that's right within your would purview. Be one of many people, yeah, yeah. If, if my if, if Silicon Valley Bank was in my portfolio, we call it, it means that I would be evaluating probably one of thirty different clients. They would be one of them. I would do a an annual credit review for. We may talk to their um, their CFO if they're a big big bank. I probably wouldn't have that access, but we would talk to somebody lower on the totem pole. Um, we would give them a credit rating, we would give them credit limits, and then we would monitor their daily activities with with different tools and systems that we have. And I would do that for about 30 clients. A colleague would do that for another 30 clients. And, and um, all in all, you know, at a, at a large bank, we probably had about um, 300 people that only look at this one specific risk, which is credit risk uh, for those clients. We had another team that looked at liquidity risk, another team that looked at market risk, regulatory risk, all the risk the bank has. So in all, in, um, at Deutsche Bank, we had probably 90,000 people and a good thousand of us looked at only um, risk and risk management practices. Okay. So we'll get into how it happened here in a minute, but I've you know heard people say Silicon Valley Bank collapse, uh, Silicon Valley Bank shut down, um, you know, all these different words that sound very like death, basically. So tell us what happened. What does it mean when someone says a bank collapsed? What I mean, obviously, the building did not fall down. So what does it mean for a bank to collapse? Well, in 2008, it was a big deal. And that's because the fundamentals of what they were doing were actually a problem. The toxic mortgage-backed securities back then, um, the underlying issue was that the, the, you know, the, the people that were acquiring these mortgages over time they called it credit risk underwriting standards were became lax. 
So banks started lowering their standards. They started giving mortgages to um, people that they would normally would not have. They started um, having some uh, um, thresholds that they would not have otherwise extended, possibly for a, a higher interest rate, higher fees, uh, and they called it the subprime area. Subprime still exists, but there are many more restrictions nowadays that um, that banks have that they were not allowed to get into such lax credit standards anymore. Uh, back then, they then packaged those up uh, in a way that they thought was uh, safe, and they sold off the good pieces, and then some of the bad pieces they ended up pretending were good pieces, and they were so complex that by the end of it, no one knew how to value them anymore. And um, no one was quite sure if they were good or bad anymore. So the fundamentals were broken. On top of that, then they had all the same issues that um, uh, big big losses, like we'll see with Silicon Valley. Um, and pe when people get scared about banks, then they cut, do a run on the bank and they want their money out um, as soon as possible. So now what's different is that since the 2008 crisis, um, there's a lot more, uh, banks are safer. There's a lot more regulation, the Dodd-Frank Act, um, that came out right around the right after the crisis. A lot of international regulation, European regulation that is in line in parallel with U.S. regulation, requires banks to have a lot more what we call capital, which is just equity, a lot more um, ownership of the company in comparison to what they're lending out and what their risks are. So if a um, if something goes wrong, like a, like what happened with Silicon Valley, they should have at least more ability to absorb losses and to satisfy their their obligations. When um, when somebody when a bank collapses, uh, it's really just a, it just means that they're in default, and it doesn't mean that they were completely bankrupt necessarily, but they were unable to meet one or more obligations. In this case, they were unable to meet their deposit withdrawal. So a bunch of people showed up at their door. They said we want our money back. Ended up ended up being about twenty five percent of the, all of their outstanding deposits were asked for in one day, which for a bank is impossible to do. They don't have it all in liquid cash sitting around because they have it at work. They were otherwise relatively healthy. We can talk about why people wanted their money out, but they would have um, been able to easily turn themselves around and, and were otherwise relatively healthy had it not been for this obligation to the people that wanted their money out being missed. As soon as that happens, you are officially in default. It could also be a, an interest rate payment on a loan if you have some debt uh, and you can't pay your interest rate payment. Maybe you miss the payment operationally because something goes wrong with your mechanics, but you have to quickly justify why that happened and then get the money out the door. If you can't justify it and it is a, it's because you don't have any cash at the moment, um, even if you could get it by next week, you're still in default. And oftentimes the government then steps in and shuts you down. The good thing about this situation is since the crisis, banks are much more defragmented. So they're, they're required to be ring-fenced and the, the U.S. arm is supposed to be a separate legal entity, which it was. The U.K. arm is a separate legal entity and the European arm uh, on mainland Europe is a separate legal entity. So what that means is that they were, the, the, I think it was the California government, or I'm not sure which level, federal or state, was able to swoop in, shut down the U.S. arm over the weekend, or I think end of day Friday. Um, HSBC, a U.K. bank, swept in and bought up the U.K. arm relatively quickly because it, it was even more healthy than its U.S. counterpart, so there was no reason for it to, to fail. Um, yeah, and then the, the, the other legal entities are still kind of 
out in the open as, as to what's gonna happen to them. So it doesn't collapse, but it does miss its obligation and therefore um, it, it's no longer allowed to continue running uh, because it is in default. You said that the reason it went into default was because about 25% of the money that they uh, that people invest with them or the, yeah, the people invest with them was trying to be taken out all in one day. Um, and you said that no bank, like no bank could really handle that typically. So what I'm curious, what amount, like what percentage of the money that a bank has is typically liquid at any given time? Or does that really vary depending on the bank? Definitely varies. It's called the cash buffer that they have. And it's really hard for banks to keep pure cash. Uh, they take, they keep near cash instruments, but they need some kind of income on the money that's sitting around. Banks are financial intermediaries, so they're supposed to be taking in money and using and, and putting it to work, basically. Quickly on the types of clients they have, they're in the reason that it was such a maybe such a massive withdrawal. They do a lot of business with startups and venture capitalists, venture capitalists that fund startups. Um, they don't have a whole lot of checking accounts, like just you or me having a checking account at a bank. Those would be more of your retail savings banks type of type of um, of clients. And while we might hear something about uh, Bank of America, for example, and I'm definitely not spreading any news about Bank of America just <laughs> for sake of example, um, you might see it in the news. Uh, I might consider taking my money out just because I'm in the finance field, but probably not still. Even checking accounts are insured up to a hundred thousand. Um, it's really not, not a huge deal if, um, if, but in terms of your own money being safe, people that aren't in finance might not even have heard the news. So they're not going to be showing up at the bank's door unless somebody's pushing them there. Venture capitalists, however, and startup companies, the last thing that they need is for their business models to be ruined because, um, because a bank, their bank had an issue. If anything, it's because of the risks that they're taking, that they're a startup, they have a new idea, they want they want all the risk to be on that side and not counterparty credit risk to their to their own bank. So venture capitalists don't mess around with with this kind of stuff. They were very hip to what was going on. They saw the some of the losses that uh, Silicon Valley Bank was um, was realizing, which we can talk about in a second. Uh, they were right on the pulse of the market because it's, that's their whole job is to know what's going on, reading the financial newspapers, asking questions of the bank, probably had access to the CFO, for example, um, and uh, they weren't liking the answers they were getting. So they decided, um, probably didn't show up at the front door, but they definitely sent a, a chat or they sent, they got a phone call and they said, I want the, the billion dollars I have with you guys, I want it out right now. And it wasn't millions of people. It was probably um, more like uh, 50 to 100 companies that came to them in one day and, and wanted it out. That ex actually explains a lot. So it was a few accounts, but very, very big accounts. It wasn't like, you know, 500 million people with $10,000 in their account all pulled it out at the same time. It was right. totally different than that. You see those black and white photos of the of the, the Great Depression era, um, people standing around the, the block. That took a long time to happen. I think it wasn't that may have been partially what it looked like in one day, but as people slowly got to know what was going on, they told each other and rumors went around. And then you had a real run on the bank at the retail level. Um, but that uh, that would be very strange to happen nowadays unless it got, um, you know, pre 2008 Lehman Brothers type of stuff going on. 
Well, that that made me think that you said, you know, rumors get going and all of that. And so it would be unlikely that that would happen because it takes a long time for that to happen. But in the age of social media where everybody's spreading rumors that aren't true all the time, do you worry or do you think that we should worry that that type of a situation might be easier to have happen than we think? Yeah, this is where I definitely don't have the crystal ball, but uh, anything could happen. And these things do happen very quickly. The only difference between now and 2008 is that the the assets, if if all the banks will bankrupt, the assets inside of them are still healthy. So the turnaround program, it might be an immediate shock to the markets. You have lots of things that happen with stock prices, with these scares. If you have even another bank, even a, a bigger bank, for example, after Silicon Valley go bankrupt, you'll really see it in um, all the news and, this, and the stock prices will, will plummet um, and it'll look like a real crisis. But the, there's nothing toxic, as far as we know, um, on the balance sheets nowadays. It's not like the subprime mortgage crisis. There's, it's not revolving around fundamental issues. It's really just a scare because people don't like banks failing. It's a, it's a scary thing to have happen. Um, they don't know, especially if you're not in the finance world, you don't know if, what's going to happen to your money. Um, most people don't have more than 100000 in their account, individual accounts that they need to, to worry about. Uh, and even so... Um, things have already started happening, like the the FDIC that does uh, um, insure up to a hundred thousand per account. Obviously, a venture capitalist has a much bigger account than a hundred thousand, but they've already put out a statement to help comfort people that they will will insure the entire amount of whatever is in the account, way more than a hundred thousand. So there's some criticism now because back in 2008, all the banks kind of agreed and the regulators agreed that um, you know, more on the regulator regulator side that we would not bail out banks anymore, that no one is too big to fail. And in order to do this, we're, we're going to put in all these secure, these secure measures and safety nets, and you have to have more capital and um, a huge burden on the banks to really be safe and go through stress tests and things. And then we won't have anybody fail anymore. Um, but if somebody does fail, we've agreed we're not going to bail them out. That was kind of the unofficial agreement at the time. With the FDIC saying we're actually going to um, guarantee all of the money in the accounts, it's starting to feel like they're bailing them out a little bit. And then Credit Suisse, the, is a bigger bank in Switzerland, is having some stock price issues. People are asking questions about them as well. Um, uh, and the Swiss government made a statement already saying we, we are in a position that we would not, not let them fail. It's basically what they would say. So there's a lot of politics going around as well as to how we should continue to, to handle these situations. If they did fail, however, I as from what I know right now, there's everything's healthy in there. They could sell off the assets um, over the course of a few months, split up the bank, maybe buy, sell them off to other other banks, and it should recover um, much more quickly than the 2008 crisis. We know, I mean, obviously, we know where the fear is coming from now, because like you said, especially people who aren't in finance, we just don't really know what all of this means. But where did the fear originally start? So take us back to why this 25% of you know, venture yeah. capital funds and all that, why they said, this is not safe. We want our money. Yeah. And that is an issue. Um, even when you look at Credit Suisse, they've had about a decade of problems in anywhere from not really, really some, some bad investments for sure, but, but also um, bad headline reputational issues like money laundering. Um, Swiss banks are quite secretive as part of their business model, really. So they, uh, they end up with some shady clients sometimes. And then those shady clients have some money laundering issues and it makes its way into the news. And they've had almost every year, maybe even twice a year, they've had some kind of issue. So they are 
slowly um, deteriorating in terms of their business model and they, they acknowledge this. So um, that's not, they're not having a run on them, but um, that's why there's so much attention around them. If, they, if there was going to be a run on the next bank, they're probably in one of the worst shapes right now in, in terms of the systemically important giant universal banks. Um, but that's a slow bleed that, that Credit Suisse is going through. It's not like they have one specific event. Silicon Valley, for interest rate con context, uh, four or five years ago, or even less than that, interest rates were negative, meaning that banks could borrow money at negative interest rates from, uh, from their governments. Governments set interest rates with various monetary policy tools, um, and they enforce these interest rates. They can move them up and down. Um, if there's a high amount of inflation, they can hike the interest rates, and that keeps inflation lower, brings it back. If there's a crisis and there's a low amount uh, um, of inflation, they want to get the economy running again, they can cut interest rates, which makes it easier for uh, banks to borrow and easier for people to borrow and for businesses to borrow. So they almost artificially cut the interest rates and then everyone says, okay, great. We're in a bad time, but I'm going to borrow and I'm going to start a new business. I'm going to borrow, I'm going to buy a new house. I'm going to borrow and um, help support uh, a new organization. And then it gets the economy rolling again. So governments do this. They had had the interest rates extremely low, so low that they were in negative territory um, so that they can keep these, uh, the, the health of the economy and they had had that for years, this policy. Uh, a lot of it came from the crisis, but also um, most recently because of the hits from Corona and the, what, it, what that did to the markets. So the point is they had a very low interest rate environment. And when banks have a low interest rate environment, they can borrow. There's a lot of borrowing that happens, but they're not making a whole lot of money. So they have to keep the lights on for the checking accounts. Um, in this case, the venture capitalists, they have to... Um, uh, maybe in, if for savings accounts, they have to pay you a little bit of interest. And that's what their cost is. They have to pay their people to work there. That's all the cost of the bank. And what they do on the other side, in the revenue side, is they make loans typically. That's a bank model, uh, a home loan or car loan or whatever. And they make a, a, enough interest to not only pay off their costs, but also make some profit on that. A side note, it's important to, to highlight the safety of banks nowadays is that they used to make uh, in excess of 20% sometimes. The big investment banks would make 20% returns, which are like hedge fund type of returns. And they used to be able to do things like trade on their own books. They used to have uh, do some speculative trading, um, a hedge fund type of models, but for something that's supposed to be um, a financial intermediary and not making bets on itself. They're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, they are allowed to have a low risk investment portfolio to, to make some income. Uh, but they're not allowed to go crazy with like they used to be able to. And now, uh, with the amount of capital that they're required to hold, the more capital you have to hold, the harder it is for you to make money on it. The, the lack of trading that they're allowed to do from their, on their, on behalf of themselves, they only make between two and maybe 8% per year. So it's a completely different business model. And it just shows you how much safer they are. They're, they're really stable financial intermediaries. Now they can still mess up, which Silicon Valley did. So Silicon Valley during the low interest rate environment said, okay, we can't make, we're, we're giving out home loans at 0.8% uh, interest. That's not a big enough margin for us to really keep the lights on for any sustainable business model here. So what they did is they put the money to work somehow and they bought up uh, United States treasury bonds. 
longer duration, 20 or 30 year bonds that have higher interest rates. And then they also have some mortgage backed securities. These types of mortgage backed securities are low risk. They're not the same subprime mortgage backed securities. They're just mortgages that are packaged up and they're extremely low risk and they provide some interest rate. So they said, okay, we're going to buy these, these low risk investments instead of making loans. And we'll get a little bit of additional interest during this low interest rate environment. They kept these securities, um, which was about, uh, they ended up having about 55% of their assets in securities investments, which is double what any other bank possibly has. And the problem was that three fourths of that 55% was an interest rate sensitive instruments. So they didn't, there, there are a number of low risk investments they could have invested in. They chose to invest 75% of their securities into interest rate sensitive investments. Um, Those are not low risk. They are low risk, but it exposes its concentration risk. It exposes you to interest rates. So it's about 40% of their entire, uh, asset base, all the money they have was exposed to interest rate risks. That's a terrible way to diversify. It's terrible risk, risk management. You, it opens you up to concentration risk of what interest rates do. So, um, at the time these, on average, these, um, treasury bonds and mortgage backed securities were giving about 1.9% interest, which was significantly higher than the interest rate at the time. But every time the interest rates on the market rise by 1%, the value of those bonds decreases by about 6%. That was the relationship between, uh, mathematically for, for that portfolio. So in 2022, there's been a lot of inflation lately. So in 2022, the go governments have slowly started uh, increasing interest rates, but almost every month or so. And you can see it. If you look at a chart, the, the, at the beginning of 2022, I think they're around 1% or so, and now they're almost near 5%. So it's about a 4% increase in one year, almost unheard of. They didn't expect this. Um, this devalued their securities by an enormous amount. Uh, most of their securities were held as what's called held to maturity investments, meaning they don't have to revalue them on any kind of periodic basis. They can just hold them in their books. But some of them were uh, held from an accounting standpoint as available for sale assets, meaning that they have to revalue them. They don't have to uh, sell them and realize losses, but they have to post their unrealized losses. And by this time, uh, around 40% in interest rate bearing instruments, you've lost 25 to 30% of your value on your available for sale securities. Even though your, your losses are kind of hidden on the held to maturity side, your investors are seeing it now. So these unrealized losses, just losses that appear on the balance sheet, but are not actually realized by selling them have to go into capital ratios. And they have to go against how your safety net and what investors perceive you. And this happened over the course of a year, really less than a year. And all of a sudden, um, they start putting this into their earnings calls. Okay. We have some unrealized losses here. We have this and this investors ask some questions. Um, credit rating agency came to them and they said, okay, from a regulatory standpoint, your unrealized losses don't have to go into the regulatory capital ratios, which is true. But from our standpoint, we, uh, our, our credit ratings are driven by um, a specific ratio called the total common equity ratio. And this does include those unrealized losses you guys are experiencing. 
So from our standpoint, we're giving you a heads up. Unfortunately, we're going to have to downgrade you if you continue to see these um, unrealized losses accumulate into 2023 and beyond. So the mistake, it's not its not a problem to have a bad investment. They, Like I said, they're, they're, they were low-risk investments. They were on their balance sheet, but they weren't selling them. They weren't really trying to, they were just making, they're still making the 1.9% interest, but the value of the bonds themselves are, are um, deteriorating. It's not hurting their day-to-day -day business model though. Should they have done that? Probably not. Probably they should have shifted around a little bit. Now that the interest rates are high, start making some loans again, or at least react faster and tell the investors that you're going to revamp your business model now that interest rates have changed. They didn't do that. Um, so what ended up happening was they said, okay, we don't want to have our credit rating downgraded. That makes our it, uh, debt more expensive. It makes it harder for us to raise money. Um, don't do that. Just hang on. What we're going to do is we're going to um, sell off. We're going to stop the bleeding. These unrealized losses will stop today because we're going to sell all of our available for sale securities. And the held to maturities, we don't have to deal with anyway. Then the credit rating agency will be happy. Then after we sell those with the proceeds, we're going to put it against our capital ratio. And we're going to ask the markets for some new fresh equity. So they're going to issue some stocks and get some, you know, get some money and cash in the door by issuing some more shares. There was also a piece of it where they ended up being preferred shares, which is a whole different type of share. But that somehow, when you do preferred shares, it delays the the um, the issuance by one day, and that gave investors even more time to realize what's happening. Normally, when you issue shares, you have to go, uh, you know, you go to a bank, you have to go uh, to to underwrite the securities, you have to justify to investors, do roadshows as to why you're issuing new shares because you better have some big plans for it. We're going to go into a new market. We're going to do a new business. We're going to make some new um, gadgets or something. And all these shares are going to go towards these activities. And we're going to make expected amount of returns for you guys. They didn't do that. They just said, hey, we kind of need some shares and really quick. And by the way, credit rating agency wants to downgrade us. So the communication was absolutely botched by management. And the types of investors that are, like I said, that are in the deposits are, are not dumb uh, investors. They know exactly um, where their money is at all times and who has it and how good they are. So they said, we don't like that at all. To us, that sounds like a cash burn issue. You guys are burning through your cash and you desperately need cash. We're not going to risk this anymore. We're pulling it out. And it was only 25% of them that said this. It wasn't the majority, but that was plenty for them to have some, some major, major issues. And this is what... Um, the run on the bank, uh, how it how it came to be. That's really fascinating to me from a communication perspective that all of these brilliant finance people and this happened because of a miscommunication, basically. <laughs> that, I mean, is that fair to say? What they should have done is probably, and I don't know the ins and outs of exactly what, what their choices were, but they probably should have taken the credit rating downgrade and then slowly shifted themselves around and said, okay, we're going to take step by step. We're going to, um, we're going to tell the market we have this, these portfolio that, that are, have these unrealized losses. Um, we're going to slowly, uh, we're going to slowly sell these off. And then we're going to ask for some shares, maybe some capital raise or we're not or whatever, but it's going to take a course of, it's a five year turnaround plan. And in the meantime, unfortunately, we're downgraded. That would have been a more responsible way to do it. 
Instead, they just tried to do it quick and like nothing to see here. And people, uh, the, the venture capitalists were not, uh, they, they weren't having it. They said there is something to see here and we're going to figure it out. And uh, there was one venture capitalist from the, a year and a half ago or so. Just because the uh, Silicon Valley Bank messed up a couple of payments operationally, they just didn't come through in the right way. They were they didn't like the stink that 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 had on them, and they said, "You guys don't have your stuff together, so we're going to pull all our money out just because you messed up those payments." So they're really not messing around like a, a retail checking account person might. So this all feels nebulous to me in the sense of it's all about money that's not really there, and and I don't know, it, it gets confusing. So my question is, what's happening now with Silicon Valley Bank? What are they doing right now? So they quote unquote collapsed. Obviously, that doesn't probably mean that all the employees got fired and it's done. What are they doing now to mitigate the collapse? Well, the U.S. arm, the U.S. entity, Silicon Valley Bank, and it's based in California, but the, so it's the main entity, is, uh, is officially shut down. That usually means that uh, it, the assets are frozen government steps in and, and declares them bankrupt or in default so to say and then the next step is uh they have to go and a trustee comes in a bankruptcy trustee and they see what's what assets are there who they owe um they try to get everybody their money back as as quickly as possible and then usually the shareholders of the bank um take all the losses in the end if there's anything left for the shareholders at the end of the day at the end of the court cases everything um then they get a little bit of their money back but they probably won't get get much of it back Lehman Brothers took around uh, around 10 years to finish up their final unwinding of a transaction. So it's a very long process. Wow. The UK entity, like I said, they're separate, was bought up by HSBC, a huge U UK bank. So they, were, they will just be absorbed into the, into the operations of HSBC and everyone there will probably keep their jobs for the most part. Some people will be fired because, they, they, because the merger causes that. Um, and I think not sure what with all the other entities around the world how many they have, but they're in in similar um, uh, uncertain times right now as to as to what will be the next steps with those. It's very different to where it, when it was before two thousand eight because a lot of times these would have been so interconnected that the the global structure of Silicon Valley Bank would have probably had the default at all at the same time or at least in, in, in a pretty aligned way. Okay, so I said, you know, I said obviously it doesn't mean like that people all lost their jobs. But it sounds like maybe I'm wrong on that, that at least for the U.S. branch, is that literally what happened? They were just told, hey, you don't have a job now? They should. That's, they probably still work. The, the bank still has to continue running because they have to, um, I mean, the assets are frozen. And this is where right. it's a little bit unclear for me as well. But I, I, I know that with Lehman Brothers, for example, people had to leave the office right away. But they installed people there to kind of continue keeping it running um, while they went through the bankruptcy proceedings for various okay. reasons. Which, like you said, could go on for years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not the bankruptcy proceedings because it may or may not go to that. But all of this stuff could go on for a really long time. Yeah, and it will for sure. It takes a long time to sort through the assets, go through the legal proceedings, the appeals, all the people that are involved, all the people that have claimed they've lost money. Um, and the end result will probably take about a decade. So let's move on to what people are saying on like social media and all of that. Um, 
Two things. Well, one that I want to ask about is we've mentioned the Lehman Brothers a couple of times. And I remember earlier this week, I sent you a picture. It was like a little meme or something. And it had the, I guess, CEO or something of Silicon Valley Bank. I can't even remember. Somebody high up in there. And it had circled his name tag or something. And it acted like it was this breaking news. And it said, you know, this guy was also with Lehman Brothers, was also a high up in Lehman Brothers back in the day. And I sent that to you. And I was like, oh, what does this mean? Is this, is this, you know, actual corruption or whatever. And you kind of laughed about that. And can you tell me why you kind of laughed and why that, why knowing what you know, that's not really a signal of corruption? Yeah, because in the end, all of us uh, have to work somewhere. And just because you worked for Lehman Brothers doesn't mean that um, that you were the, the, the sole cause of what happened. Uh, and it, obviously the subprime mortgages were the sole cause. The culture may have been, had it been an issue, but overall, you're still a valuable person. And uh, when I worked at Deutsche Bank, half my team was ex-Lehman people that had lost their jobs in 2008 and then made their way to Deutsche Bank or went to another bank in the meantime and then eventually went to Deutsche Bank. Um, but they had the same skills. Uh, Deutsche Bank or whatever bank needs the same skill set that Lehman Brothers had. Uh, and just because he went to Silicon Valley Bank it could it could be that he if he was a high enough high enough up guy, um, he was I think I think they said CFO or something like that. So he could have brought a culture with him that contributed to poor risk management, for example. But it what I didn't like is that it doesn't mean he maliciously did something that would be the silliest thing for him to do. He, he doesn't want things to fail, and clearly uh, being invested in low interest rate. United States treasuries and mortgage-backed securities is not a malicious thing to do. The concentration to those securities was a bit idiotic and shows lack of risk management practice, but it's not like he was sitting behind his desk like Dr. Evil trying to do uh, also um, do something malicious uh, that he did at Lehman Brothers. That Yeah, that makes sense. That all, all Lehman Brothers employees are not a homologous unit. And, and I think, you know, because this is a storytelling podcast, it's interesting to me and funny to me that this is what we do as humans. We, we want the story. We want to figure things out and understand it. So when people who don't understand the finance part of it get a hold of the story, they, they want to try to figure out how it works. And so we start putting meaning into things where perhaps there is meaning or perhaps there isn't. But either way, putting something out there like that can be... Um, you know, slanderous at worst and just baseless rumor, I suppose, at best. Um, I, I, like I said, I worked in risk management. So I, there are, mentioning the guy, the Lehman Brothers guy who came over in the culture he may have brought, there are definitely some, some slimy people out there that work in banking. Banking attracts a, a, a really greedy mindset. And it's, it's definitely not the vast majority of people that work in finance. But it is a few of those people, um, mostly in the, on the sales side, it could be, and some of the transactions we would get from them that to, to approve them from a risk management side, you can tell the mindset was just fixated on how can I make the most money out of this, um, potentially uh, not directly saying it, but how can I screw the client over enough that I can get the, my maximum paycheck out of this. And you could see and feel that in every way, that how they spoke, how they um, you know, how they dressed, how they uh, approached people in general. So unfortunately, the and they can make a lot of money. And this is the reason that they were drawn to this field. 
it does draw these people. And for that reason, um, you had things like the 2008 crisis and all the crises that come before that, where banks were allowed to do these uh, these these shady things and, and speculate on themselves and, and not care about all the people that just had deposits there, just wanted a safe financial intermediary. So I've always been of the opinion that the Dodd-Frank is a, is a banking regulation to try to avoid crisis. It might not be a perfect regulation, but there's many similar types of regulation around the world. Um, ECB, European Central Bank has similar, and we all share these global guiding principles that are aiming at the same thing, which is making banks as safe as they poss possibly can be. Um, I, I Knowing some of the people that I have come in contact at banks, um, I may not have thought this when I was in school, because I think I why you you shouldn't hold the bank backs that back. They're the backbone of the of the economy and all these things. But knowing the people that work there, that have a lot of the power, uh, we need more regulation. There's there's the only way that you can balance that out. You need their drive and their um, their ability to understand things. I mean, they are in the end they are motivated by money. And that's driving them to do some pretty amazing things. They come out with amazing financial products, really ingen ingenuitive, um, that make the markets more efficient. But they also want unfair pay sometimes for that, and they they will go too too far. So you have this regulation on the other side of it. It doesn't have as much to do with Silicon Valley Bank because it, it focused more on the systemically important banks, the giant, huge banks, two hundred and fifty billion assets and more, typically. Um, for context. Silicon Valley, um, I mean, they were about 100, 120. I don't know the exact number, but they were definitely not a systemically important bank, more of a regional bank. Um, the big uh, trillion dollar asset banks, um, global universal banks, all are heavily burdened by the Dodd-Frank Act and many different global regulations. And they have to now go through stress tests and liquidity tests and um, prove to regulators that if you were to, if it, uh, what would happen if uh, you had a run on the bank? What if this portfolio devalued by 40% over the next three months, and then you had a 20% run on the bank, what would happen? Okay, what would happen if it was a 30%? Do a reverse stress test. What would happen? What would actually kill you? How would you collapse? And it's a lot of extra work, but it is the, it is the only reason that we might not see the same type of crisis again at least in the same way, unless it gets gets around the back door and we, we kind of miss it. Silicon Valley is not beholden to nearly as much of the Dodd-Frank Act as, as big banks are. Had they been beholden to stress tests that are mandated by the Dodd-Frank Act, um, they would have done these same kind of uh, risk management uh, reviews on an annual basis. They would have had to say, um, hey, we have some really high concentrated interest rate risk. Why is that? What would happen if these if interest rates went up by one percent? What would happen? What would happen if it went up by four percent? Somebody would for sure say, "Oh, that's out of the question. That's so stupid. That would never happen." They would be forced to do the reverse stress test. Well, okay, even if it would never happen, what if it did happen? Could we handle twenty five percent, thirty percent run on the bank? And the answer would have been no. And that would have been the time they would have been required by regulators to turn their business model around and make themselves safer. So, if anything, uh, they would have benefited from being more regulated. In terms of the in Silicon Valley, I was also reading that um, they didn't have a risk culture, obviously. They had poor risk management practices. What ended up bringing them down was the lack of communication, the botched um, cash burn communication, basically. Um, they, no one on the board, this was just mentioned by the article, I don't know if it would have mattered, but no one on the board 
uh, of Silicon Valley had a risk management background. Like they were never the chief risk officer of some organization. Um, and at, whenever we had, uh, at, at banks I worked at, whenever we had CEOs that were more from the sales side or the revenue side, we got into more trouble. Whenever we had somebody who had been on both sides, um, infrastructure risk, as well as the revenue side, you got a better outcome from it. In this case, nobody on the board had ever had any kind of risk background. So they did, the, the mindset wasn't there. Also, this is really important, as interest rates were rising so quickly in 2022, for about eight months, they didn't have a chief risk officer. I don't know why, um, but they, they maybe, maybe they fired him or he left, but they didn't replace him for an entire eight months. And working in risk management myself, it's not that, you, that the head guy does all the work, but people have a really big aversion to be accountable for things when they might have seen the risks out there. But if they don't have a chief risk officer spitting down on the, you know, the next line of management saying, get me this information, and then they spit down on the next line of management saying, um, why is this report showing huge unrealized losses and what, what could this do? People kind of just take their hands off the wheel and, and, and lay back a little bit. You need someone that is from the very, very top that is steering the risk management program. Um, even if somebody on the bottom of the totem pole said, you know, they saw some spreadsheets and models and they go, oh, man, this is, look, this looks really bad. This, this interest rate thing could really have a huge effect. Likely they're not going to do enough homework to see how it actually, what would, what would it affect um, if we, if our, how, from a credit rating perspective? What would it affect if we had a run on the bank? What would it affect if, with our total common equity ratio? No one has a big picture view. The only person that's really paid to have that view is someone like a chief risk officer. This guy wasn't there, so I have a feeling that was part of the issue that people just kind of said, all right, well, I, look, I'm doing my piece of my job. That guy, I don't care what my colleague over in liquidity risk does. I'm going to keep on doing this. And if I raise any concerns and escalate, it's only going to result in more homework and work for me. This is definitely part of what happened. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes total sense. I can see how that accountability piece would be missing from that puzzle. So I have two more questions for you. One, uh, I know you have done a lot of research on this whole thing over the past week, week and a half, uh, partly because I asked you to talk about it, but but also more so because you are an adjunct lecturer at a college in uh, Wiener Neustadt, Austria, um, the college which you attended both part of your undergrad and then your grad program. Um, so when, first of all, will you tell us about that experience? Of, like, I know you just did your lecture today, right? Yeah. Well, I ended up talking about this at the lecture a bit as well. The the director of the program had, you had asked me to talk to if I knew about it. And um, I work in more of a uh, IT project management side now in the last couple of years, whereas before I was more on the pure credit risk side. So I'm not as in the in the news. I don't need to be as in, as much anymore. So when th and, and honestly, since the since um the Trump era, there was so much news circulating every day that made me angry that I turned off my news apps years ago. <laughs> so I, fair enough. I only hear it through WhatsApp now, and maybe I should turn it back on because it's been really interesting to do this. But um, you mentioned it, and then uh, the 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 program director also said, "Hey, uh, you know, would you mind talking about this at your class today?" Because the sa that same class he had taught in the previous week, and he said um, he had just mentioned to them how nowadays bank failures don't really happen anymore. 
because banks are different now. They're different animals. <laughs> so he goes, so could you please address that? Try to give him some cool next, but I feel like an idiot. So, yeah, I, I look real dumb now is what he was thinking. <laughs> he needed yeah. some reinforcements. <laughs> so I told the students he was really embarrassed, uh, but uh, it's not too, it's not the same as 2008, or at least I tried to convince them. <laughs> I would love to know what they think about that. I should get some of them and see if I, they can come on the podcast and see if they act like they learned anything from you or if they <laughs> think you and your other professor are just in cahoots with the Lehman Brothers. Yeah, that could be. It, I don't know. Maybe you are. Maybe this is all an act. I don't know. But on that note, while you were doing your research, did you come across, like, I brought up a couple of the little things that I had seen about, you know, not necessarily cons conspiracy theories, but just maybe conflated issues that aren't really connected or whatever. Did you run across anything funny or any connections that were laughable because they totally weren't really connected? Did you run across anything like that? Um. I have a new favorite Facebook page that I, that I just love, but uh, it has a lot of funny antidotes so that um, they have, they take news articles and they just basically deface them. And it's ridiculous, but they, they go through, oh, this is this to happen and that happened. And it, look at this theory and page four, um, I'm going to draw this extra piece on here and try to make you think this. And it, it's people who just kind of com um, compile these and, and a lot of them are financial. Some of them are not financial. Uh, but it's, it just definitely shows you the, um, I think, I think our, our, our kids will probably get smarter with social media. It's already pretty okay. easy. If, if you have any head about you, it's pretty easy to kind of look through and say, um, does, is the headline scary? 80% it's probably false, but look deeper into it. Do they have details in the, in the article? Not really. It's more superficial or maybe they do have details. If they do have details, where do they come from? What are they quoting? Are there any similar articles out there that are not just quoting the original article? So you can, within about 30 seconds, you can, you have the tools to figure out if something might be legitimate or not. And I think our kids and their kids, kids will be even, um, even more savvy and, and quick with that. So I don't see the, the rumor mill as, um, uh, something that we can't figure out how to deal with. That's an, actually the way you phrased that is an excellent testament to media literacy and, and it's been interesting seeing media, media literacy ebb and flow over the years. And I think you're right that Gen Z and then I guess Gen Alpha, I think is what our kids would be, um, will, it'll be interesting to see how they handle uh, social media and mainstream media and everything in between. So final question for you. You know, I, I am not a venture capitalist person. I'm guessing nobody that listens to my podcast will be either. So for us regular people who have, you know, $7 in our accounts, okay, I'm being a little facetious there, but for those of us that are more quote unquote normal income, um, is there anything we need to be doing differently because of what's been going on? Is there anything, I know you're not going to tell me to run to the bank and get my money out, but is there anything we should be on the lookout for or just any way that we need to move differently with our money? Yeah, you d definitely don't need to move your money out. Um, like I said, the FDIC in, by law insures up to 100000 So you're already already insured up to that amount, even if uh, any bank fails. I know you sent an article on Interest Bank, um, some of the local regional banks there in the Midwest. Um, but even if they failed, uh, like I said, it wouldn't be a, a 2008 type of fail, but they might shut their doors for whatever reason. 
um, in a in a fantasy scenario, this this could happen. If that does happen, your your money is safe up to a hundred thousand, as long as the government is behind it. Um, uh, they may choose to even insure more than that. Um, in terms of um, that's just that's just your check your money in your checking account. In terms of investing, um, their interest rates might do something really interesting. So if you're if you are um, in, in wanting to do some retail type of investing on online brokerage platform or something, then um, you could look for potential um, uh, cuts in interest rates. Governments might do some really quick cuts to try to uh, stave off any scares that the economy is going to sink into a recession and then a subsequent depression. Um, they started raising interest rates for the opposite reason, because they wanted to stave off inflation. They didn't want things to go too crazy and then created this bubble. Now that we have this scare, especially if a huge bank like Credit Suisse in Switzerland um, even has minute issues, then they say, okay, for the, for the next year, we're going to cut interest rates by, you know, let's say they do two and a half percent. That would be huge if you got into some um, investments now, uh, like if you, you, you bought a a few bonds that were paying off, paying 4% interest, and then uh, interest rates drop to, to 2%, then those bonds are going to uh, give you a, you know, right away, like a 12% return in, in one year. From a home loan perspective, uh, I'd looked at potentially buying in, in the next year or so, but I can't afford it right now because interest rates are so high. A, a housing loan is, is too expensive right now. The interest alone was going to be more than my entire rent payment not including the in principle at all. So if you're looking to buy a home, then you might uh, you might have some luck in the next year or two. If they, if they do, if governments do slash interest rates to instill some confidence in the markets and keep the economy healthy, then take advantage. And um, maybe when they get down to the 2% range, uh, enter into a home loan, try a fixed, a fixed interest rate for at least 10 years or so. Um, and then, because uh, it, it might just be a quick dip that they do it to instill confidence and then raise them back up again if we start having inflation issues. It's all about timing. Excellent. Well, thank you. This has honestly added a lot of clarity. Yes, there were still some things that you said that I don't understand, but it really did help me at least to understand a little bit better about what happened and how and why and what it means. Uh, so... I appreciate you being willing to come on and talk about it. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And I think this has been the most serious conversation that you and I have ever been able to have. It's honestly, it's 56 minutes and it has not been easy for me. <laughs> I have had many things I wanted to say that I did not. But you're right. We did maintain profession professionality the whole time, professionalism the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm proud of it. <laughs> Thank you again, Jason, for coming and talking to us and breaking that down piece by piece and explaining some of the stuff that maybe is just hard to understand for the rest of us. And thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this current event story time. Again, if it's something that people are into, I think it would be really fun to do it again on something else. So let me know what you think, and I will catch you right here next week on Create Space. <laughs>